after, after baptisms, it's such a joy just to be able to shout about what God has done. Glad to do that with you guys today. Um, almost uh, every year, at least for the last handful of years, we've been doing a series right after Easter called Asking for a Friend. Uh, and what that series is all about is it's basically just tackling tough questions that oftentimes were uncomfortable to ask. Um, they're hard, either that or they come with lots of opinions and they make us nervous or you know, there's all kinds of things that are tied into these questions. And so in the past, we've, I think we've done this three times before. This is our fourth time kind of heading into this now. And uh, we're going to do, do this over the next three weeks where we're going to do this series asking for a friend. And we're going to just tackle a handful of the questions that we hear you asking or we hear that people maybe here are, are nervous to ask about. In our private kind of meetings with some of you, there's the questions that come up about it. And so this is us trying to just speak into it a little bit and try to help us be as biblically informed as we can be about some of these tough questions. So over these three weeks, uh, we're going to tackle three, these three topics. The first one today that we're going to be talking about is what does it look like for a Christian to be involved in voting and politics uh, next week, we're going to talk about how do we as Christians, what does it look like for us uh, to love someone who might also be walking through same-sex attraction. Uh, and then the third week, there's been lots of questions about what does it mean for, what, what, what do we mean when we talk about women in church leadership and how all that works together. Uh, and so we're going to be tackling that on the third week. All of those, uh, th- there's probably at least one of those that made you go, ooh, you know, start to just, uh, how's that going to go? All of those are questions that tend to be things we're uncomfortable about. They make us, you know, they, they make us tense up a little bit. And uh, what we don't want to do is just pretend that that doesn't happen. Instead, we want to speak into it as biblically as we can. And so we're going to do that over these next few weeks. Um, our elders realize that this is the, each of these topics are not the type of thing that we can just perfectly capture in one sermon. Um, these are conversations that probably take. Uh, a lot of time, and uh, each topic probably could have a whole series to itself. Um, So one of the things they want to do is they want you guys to be thinking through what your questions are. So when we walk through each of these sermons, they would love for you to take, uh, to kind of capture your questions and email them to this email address, questions at ubcbeavercreek.com. As you email those questions in, our elders are actually going to host a night on April 30th, at 6.30, where they welcome you to come, and they're just going to address those questions. So as you hear the things that are preached over these next few weeks, it'll, for sure, it'll churn some things up. And if you've got questions, send them to that email address, and our our elders are just going to take a night and hit on those uh, on April 30th, just to try to help speak into the question points that come up from these topics. Um, So we want to make sure that you know about that. Our elders are also going to make sure that we're providing resources every week. Um, So every week out in the lobby, you'll see some physical resources that you can take with you today, uh, as well as some things that we're going to be introducing on our website and all that kind of stuff as well, just to try to be helps for you. So as I said, this first week, we're going to be tackling what does it look like for a Christian to be involved in voting and politics and all that. And uh, so we have invited uh, Glenn Dewar, who is one of our deacons here at the church, but is also a professor at Cedarville and one of our local city council members. So this is a guy who's teaching on this topic all the time. He is living this out day to day all the time, having to be a Christian in the political sphere. Uh, and so we've invited Glenn to come 
uh, and help us think a little bit more biblically about what it means to be a Christian involved in these topics. So Glenn doesn't have to do this for us all that often, so let's start him out with a warm welcome, shall we? All right. morning, UBC. It is wonderful to be here with you, and it's terrific to be in this room. Uh, if you think just even a mere few months ago, the construction under which this room went, you can think through just the unfinished pieces, debris flying in various areas, but if you peel away the carpet and kind of undo a few things... It's such a blessing here because there's so much Scripture written into this area. So many of you have diligently prayed over this. You've written God's Word. A couple of my fellow deacons put uh, Scripture verses on the doorpost back here. And it really just is amazing to see it come together. But before we get going, I have a confession for all of you. I, Glenn Dewar career academic, avoider of manual labor, <laughs> was allowed to put up the drywall in this room. And not just the drywall down low, the drywall up high. There are a few of you right now kind of craning your neck like, Janet, do you think he did the drywall behind us? Rita, I know we're back row Baptist, but, uh, you know, the Spirit is leading me, and I think we need to move forward a few rows. And so if you're wondering as to the Janet and Rita reference, it's from the delightful Australian children cartoon series called Bluey. And uh, indeed. But when I look at this room, and I look at it when I left off with all the imperfections, just screw gun, drop. It didn't look the way it looks here. There's a perfection in this room. There's a beauty to it. And for me, it's a reminder of how God makes all things new. That if you take nothing away from today, there is a Lord Jesus Christ who can forgive your sins. In Romans 10.9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So if there's nothing else that you take away from today, because we're talking about religion and politics, uh, I may well offend you today, and forgive me for that. If the God, Word of God forgives you, consider your life and your alignment with the Word of God. But it really, if nothing else, here at UBC, it's Christ and Christ crucified alone. If you're still worried about your location in the church, know that the building inspection passed. Know that there were many more talented people than I working alongside me, men and women who were really very good at what they do, and so you can rest easier. If you're still not convinced, around 25 years ago, I used to put up drywall for minimum wage, so I somewhat can do it. And if that doesn't convince you, 
Uh, I was allowed to put up the new roof after the Memorial Day tornado on UBC East. And so all I have to say to that is four years, no leaks, neener, neener. So uh, <laughs> kind of good for me uh, in that way. So religion and politics. Pastor Jason announced it last Sunday. And you know, there are no landmines on this one, right? No strong opinions in this room, I'm sure. Uh, Pastor Phil set up this uh, pedal here to trip me up, so I can baptize myself if I trip up over it. But, I mean, it's a, it's a challenging subject. We're often told these are two items we should not discuss. I was born and raised in the United Kingdom, lived in Canada for a decade. I've been in the United States for 17 years. And what I've really learned about American society is the one third rail that you should not discuss is you should not make fun of someone's college football team. Uh, and so that is uh, one area as well. So I think as adults, we can talk about religion and politics. Uh, I just caught eye with my good friend, uh, Professor Scott Dixon, who on Good Friday talked about and used the illustration of President Biden being punched in the face. And so um, you won't get any of that from me. Um, I won't go into those types of areas, but in fairness to, to Scott, he was talking about political power and what it means, and so, uh, but I was sitting roughly where you are, Scott, during your Good Friday talk, and I was like, oh yeah, he served me up a softball there. I'm going for the fences on this one, so appreciate you being a good sport to it. My main point today to leave you with is biblical platforms and candidates slash leaders matter. So what is a platform? Well, it's a set of policy ideas that a political party will take up and try to implement. Some of those are known, they're tried, they're tested, they've worked well throughout the decades. They've been very strong, and political parties say, yes, this is where we stand. There are other areas where they may try and test some things out. This is where the society's going, this is what we're going to try to do. These are keys. These matter. But candidates and leaders also matter. I stand before you um, noting that these candidates and leaders are fallen. That's why there's an asterisk there. In a Genesis 3 sin world, everyone will have their shortcomings. For those of you in the city of Beaver Creek, I stand before you as one of your council members. I am fallen. I am flawed. I was expecting a few more amens to that one, but uh, thank you for not doing that. Uh, testify. Uh, but it's, it's one of those challenges of being in politics. Sometimes there are issues that come across the desk that you can deal with and pretty well, but sometimes the issue comes across your desk and it's, Here's a bad option, and here's a worse option, and pick. And in politics, that has its challenges. So every leader, every candidate will let you down in some way, shape, or form. We live in interesting times. I was in New York City, Midtown Manhattan, on Tuesday, April the 4th. And I want to describe for you two events that I saw within a six-hour period. The first is that my hotel was 0.2 miles from Trump Tower. And being nosy, I decided I'm going to go for a jog this morning and saw a lot of NYPD, a lot of media. 
But regardless of how you take it, we have a warrant for the arrest of a former president and a charge for him. And it's a very serious time in our country. If I told you about a country somewhere in the world where a former leader was arrested and or there was a main opposition candidate that was arrested, we would take that very, very seriously, and it's happened here. Later that day, I was invited by the National Museum of Ukraine to go and look at an exhibit of Russia's war crimes against Ukraine down in the Turtle Bay neighborhood of New York Midtown. And there I am looking at these artifacts from Russia's brazen and brutal invasion of Ukraine, illustrations of war crimes, and out the window I'm looking at the actual United Nations building. And here you have a member of the UN Security Council, the Russian Federation, invading and causing all kinds of carnage in another member state, Ukraine. And so we live in interesting times that can be really challenging and brutal, and yet at the same time, the estimated U.S. GDP for this year, gross domestic product, will likely be close to $27 trillion. We live in a time of massive, massive wealth. And if we think about trying to explain the world today to someone that died 100 years ago, just the proliferation of electricity and the automobile, you work through everything that's happened in that last century, we are abundantly blessed in so many ways as to what we have. For those of you in this room in your 70s and 80s and 90s that have spent a lifetime working, may I say thank you, because we enjoy a wonderful dividend that you have granted to us. And so it's an interesting time. Deep, deep challenges and yet also, at the same time, significant wealth and opportunity. I want to open God's Word today to the book of 1 Kings 12, and I'm going to go through verses 1 through 15 with you. This will not be on the screen, but I want to read the very end of this, the very end of 1 Kings 11, verse 43. And it reads, And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. And so as we get into 1 Kings 12, it introduces to us a powerful king, Solomon, who's just died. And as a quick history, and it's more nuanced than this, we have Israel, a country today in the Middle East that existed uh, some 3,000 years ago, and there were three powerful kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And we're at the end now of around 120 years combined of those three, wherein Solomon has just died and his son Rehoboam is taking over from him. Maybe you've heard the name Solomon before. Solomon's scripture describes is a wise man maybe the wisest man that ever lived. And the kingdom of Israel in 1 Kings 10 is described as significantly wealthy and frequently that the land is at rest. That is, 
this peace in the time, which is amazing because when you think about David's life and read about David in the Scriptures, David's usually taking Israel to war against someone else, or someone's trying to chase David to kill him. But now Israel is wealthy, and it's at peace. But Solomon has just died, and so let's read verses 1 through 5 to see what happens. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam went to Shechem, which was the historical capital of the north, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard, Nebat heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, quick time out, Jeroboam was the leader, basically a cabinet member, so to speak, uh, for Solomon, who then fled, and he is a rival to the kingdom. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. And so at the outset of this, the first five verses of 1 Kings 12, we have this new king that makes a pretty sensible decision. Rehoboam is known for a long time that he's likely to take over from Solomon. He's been preparing this for some time. And his first act is to say, give me three days. Let me think through it. Let me look at these policies. Because under Solomon, I mentioned the, the wealth and the opportunity. But at the same time, Solomon had a policy of forced labor. It was a very brutal situation for many people that were working and they were whipped, and it was a forced labor situation. And so, Rehoboam is being asked about this. Just what, what do you plan to do vis-a-vis -a, -vis a comparison with your father? And let's see what happens in verses 6 through 8. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was alive, yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And so we can see early on that Rehoboam takes the counsel of Solomon's advisors. And these advisors are the ones that for the last 40 years helped to build up Israel, helped to create its strength, helped to make it a country where the land was at rest. Not to say perfect, deep challenges and deep problems, but Rehoboam has eschewed, he's pushed away the advice of Solomon's counselors. And so if we look now at verses 10 through 15, we'll see what he does, what he implements. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, 
Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered them, answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old man had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young man, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And we can see in these six verses wherein Rehoboam looks, assesses, thinks through what Solomon did, what the advice come from Solomon's advisors, and says, no, I'm going to be my own leader. I don't need your advice. My young friends have given me advice, and I'm going to follow them. And if we were to follow 1 Kings 12 a little further, a little longer than this, the people rebel. They're upset over what's happened. And rightly so. The forced labor with whips is going to be replaced with scorpions, which is effectively like a bag of sand that's then used as a whip as well. And that burden will increase. And the people are unhappy and if we continue through 1 Kings 12, what ends up happening is 180,000 men end up ready to slaughter one another on a battlefield. It looks as if Israel's on the brink of a vociferous civil war that's about to tear the kingdom, again very powerful, limb from limb. And what ends up happening is that the Lord intervenes, peace prevails, the soldiers go home, but the kingdom splits and divides. Jeroboam ends up as the ruler of ten northern tribes and Rehoboam the southern two tribes. Biblical platforms and candidates slash leaders matter. And so that was 3,000 years ago. Nice story. So what do we make of it? In the United States... 3,000 years later, we are a superpower of our day. Abundant wealth, uh, certainly problems, many that I don't need to describe to you, deep challenges within our society, and yet we have an abundant blessing. There's so much that we have and just illustrated in, in our wealth. But it's not necessarily like that in a lot of other countries. 23 years ago, I had the blessing of visiting the country of Myanmar in Southeast Asia. And the Burmese people are warm and gracious and kind to outsiders. But the, for the first time in my life, I saw extreme poverty in, in ways that we, we haven't seen, we don't know here in the United States. Just a brutal and oppressive poverty. I then had the opportunity to visit the neighboring country of Vietnam, 
and I was part of a group, and we were teaching a lesson to school children, and I was one of the first to enter a classroom in Hanoi, and on the wall behind the board is a hammer and sickle, communist symbolism. And I remember looking at it, and I started laughing and making fun of it. What is this communist symbol doing here? And then I caught myself mid-sentence. I'm not in Kansas anymore. My constitutional rights, my free speech and expression, they're not covered. And I'm making fun of a communist country in a communist country, and communist countries don't like that. And so, in the United States, we are blessed by so much. We are protected by constitutional rights, but it's worth remembering that these should not be an idol. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ has promised to return. He has promised to come back. And as much as I love our Constitution, Jesus has said, you know, has not said He will fall under the Constitution. No, He is coming to rule and reign on His terms and His terms alone. And so let us not purport an idol of constitutional rights of what we enjoy here in the United States. Jesus, may He be our focus. So how do we think biblically about voting? You know, what can we do with this? I have the blessing of teaching at Cedarville University. I teach a course called Comparative Politics, and what it allows me to do is look at countries around the world and can compare them. Leaders, policy areas, different points of comparison. And what it does is it allows me and others that do this to see, well, what should we replicate? What should we keep? What should we get rid of and just never do again? It allows us to do all of these things. And so when Pastor Jason came to me and said, can you answer the question of how to think biblically about voting? Well, I can purport some answers, but let's use the skill set of comparative politics. And so I engaged in a comparison of leaders, believers in Christ from a range of different countries around the world, the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Bolivia, Australia, South Korea, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Samoa, as a range of different countries, and looked at some of their leaders who have purported faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, you're going to kind of cherry-pick rightist leaders here. No, there, there are some that are actually left of center in this group that are sold-out believers in Christ. Most, the majority, are on the right of the political spectrum, but there are some on the left. And so, what, what do they have in common? What can we draw out about how to think biblically about voting? And in the arena of foreign policy, there's, as you might expect from all these different countries, not a massive amount of overlap. In terms of economic policy, the same is true. If you're looking at left, right, just not necessarily a massive amount of agreement, other than that there are some taxes, and then what do you do with the taxes differ. But where they agreed almost unanimously was on the topic of Genesis 1 through 12. And its centrality, if we think about 1 Kings 12, what is, we've talked about 
advice and not taking advice. Well, the lesson in 1 Kings 12 is what is good advice and what is bad advice and how do we define it? And the way do we define it is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And so I will purport to you today that Genesis 1 through 12 gives us a central position on what is 1 Kings 12 good advice. And as a professor, it would be remiss of me if I didn't give you some homework. And so your homework is read Genesis 1 through 12. See what I've said and see if it aligns or not. That is going to be a key. And so the elders of the church put together a document outlining four big issues on which to vote based on Genesis 1 through 12. I'm going to read the heading for you, and I'll get into some of the subheadings. But I also encourage you as another point of homework to study that document, to look at it, and then to come to the Q&A session with the elders, and I've been invited to, uh, to ask your questions about the Asking for a Friend series. And so I'll get into these. There are four of them. The first, from Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, is the creation and value of human life. The second, from Genesis 1 and 2, is the establishment and function of the traditional family. Third, from Genesis 3, the understanding of right and wrong. And fourth, from Genesis 6, Genesis 8, Genesis 9, and Genesis 12, the worship of God and multiplication of His people. And so I will read a couple of these based on what the elders have put together to give us as a church guidance on a biblical view of voting. And so to go back to the creation and value of human life, the elders' document reads, Therefore, I will vote in a way that is pro-life, with a special concern for protecting those who are most vulnerable and least able to protect themselves, such as the unborn. If I hop down to the fourth one, the worship of God and multiplication of His people, here's another example. Therefore, I will vote in favor of those who support religious freedom and global evangelism, while fully understanding that God uses Christian persecution and suffering to advance His cause. And so, why Genesis 1 through 12? Well, in Genesis 1 through 12, God establishes the family, the church, and government. It is a cohesive set of scriptures that tell us and instruct us about human life and the functioning of society. At this time, I do want to go on a bit of an intentional tangent because some of you may be thinking, well, hold on, you know, you've gone through Genesis 1 through 12, but what about Genesis 13 through 50 or Exodus or anything else in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Isn't this just cherry-picking? Uh, and so there are certainly points to make about uh, how to think through voting. You know, a theme of stewardship comes out in Scripture, uh, avoiding indebtedness, a biblical standard of justice, good foreign relations. But the challenge with all of these is in Genesis 1 through 12, there's a succinct section. In the rest of these, you've got to kind of move them a bit, and it's not necessarily easy 
or there's an example that was meant for Israel, but not necessarily for everyone else. And so let me go back to probably my most controversial of the, the last ones, good foreign relations. Where do you find that in Scripture? Well, we can go back to 1 Kings. Chapters 5 through 9 actually give us an example of how to create good foreign relations with neighboring countries. It gives us a sense, but still, it's a challenge in comparison to Genesis 1 through 12 because it gives us such a succinct overview of how God ordered things to move. What do we do with someone like William Wilberforce? the British MP, member of parliament from the 18th and 19th centuries, as a sold-out believer in Christ, his life mission was to end the heinous slave trade. And indeed, it happens in 1807 with the first of two major acts where slavery as transport is abolished in the British Empire in 1807, and at the very end of his life in 1833, we have the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. It's a Christian in politics who put his life to do something to enact change. And so there are certainly a lot that we can, there's certainly a lot we can do with Scripture, but what I will say, based on my study of these leaders and the most Christians I know, is that Genesis 1 through 12 gives us great instruction in terms of how to vote, how to think biblically about voting. And maybe you're thinking, well, hold on, you've read a list. Some of them are you know, great. Others, they're part of the wider culture wars. Like that just, that's a lot. That's toxic and it's tiring and you know, I, I don't know if I have the stomach for it. And to that I say, I understand. I, I, I'm with you. Some of it is really tiring. In our country today, there are so many challenges, but we have to be careful as Christians to just recede from the public sphere. Because if we do that, if we back out, who fills it? Who's, who's putting the policies in place if Christians take a time out? And my goal here is not to scare you. My goal on this next section is to think through what could be coming. Because if a biblical worldview is pushed out, there are real and tangible dangers of massive moral degradation ahead of us. How do you know that? You're, you're a dude on a stage. How, how do you know that? I've spent a life studying... In my dissertation research and in the first of my three books, I sat down with a lot of political leaders in some of the most prominent parliaments in the world. I've seen politics over time because a lot of what happens here in the United States actually doesn't start here. It's tried elsewhere and then it comes here. So what ends up on, in our land, what ends up on our shores has usually been tried somewhere else. And so here are some examples of things happening right now that may end up here and probably will. The first is one that's already here, and it's human trafficking. I just mentioned William Wilberforce and his bravery and leadership to overturn the brutal, brutal and heinous trafficking of people, human beings made in God's image. 
But today, human trafficking encompasses an estimated 40 to 50 million people, either sex trafficked or labor trafficked today. And we'll even see it in Beaver Creek, Ohio. And so, as Christians, we need to be at the forefront of this. There's a university in British Columbia, Canada, that's based on God's Word. And what they, the, the regents of the university wanted to do was set up a law school based on God's Word to teach Christian lawyers and those that would go into law on the premise of Genesis 1 through 12 as a worldview. And court cases came against them. You cannot set this up. You cannot do it. And those court cases have continued for over a decade to the point where the province or the, the state has not made a ruling of this, but effectively a Christian law school has been blocked. Another example is a pro-life leader in the United Kingdom by the name of Isabel Vaughan Spruce. She, you may recognize the name, uh, is one that hit the headlines in the United States because she was arrested for praying silently outside of an abortion clinic. In her head, praying silently, she was arrested. And this has made the rounds in the American media, and as Christians should really concern us, because if we pray, yeah, can we break the law by doing so? Now, there are nuances in British law. She did indeed violate the Public Spaces Protection Act, but nonetheless, as Christians, it is very concerning. Euthanasia. If we as Christians are concerned about life from conception to natural death, we need to be concerned about the beauty of all of God's people, the people made in His image. But euthanasia, that is ending natural life early, is law in Belgium, in Canada, in Colombia, in Luxembourg, in the Netherlands, New Zealand, Spain, and a range of different Australian states, to some degree in the state of Oregon in the United States. In all likelihood, a further attack on life is coming. The sexual revolution. I'm going to be particularly opaque on this point because there are many younger ears in this room. But if we think we have seen the extents of it, I have news for you. Digisexualism is coming. There are major debates over pedophilia and the age of consent. Citizenship has been granted in various countries around the world for robots, animals, and rivers. We, as God's creation, have been put at the forefront by the Lord in Genesis 1 through 12. In American universities and universities in various parts of the planet, there are ongoing discussions, some of which is philosophical, but it gets to the nature of, is it ethical as a question to kill a one-year-old or a two-year-old or an 80-year-old? And a lot of times when you follow the question of life versus choice as a worldview, it ends up with things like that. 
So Christians, when we think about 1 Kings 12 and what is good advice versus bad advice, the framework of Genesis 1 through 12, a biblical worldview, gives us what we need. It's not going to be without challenges. It's going to be fraught with issues in the wider society. But we need to think through and pray through how we are involved politically. I want to leave you with four points kind of very quick takeaways. And the first is that there are two ditches for the Christian involved in politics, thinking about voting. On the one hand, there's a ditch of apathy. It's too toxic. I don't want to get involved. You know, I, I can do my thing at the church, and, and that's where I leave it. And that is a ditch we can fall into as Christians. Because again, if we're not involved, who's involved instead, and what's coming? On the other hand, there's a ditch of being overstressed, that everything is a political issue, that you eat, drink, live it, and you overstress all the time. And it leads into the second point, that is God is sovereign. We can trust Him. We can rest in Him. As Christians, we need to stand and to purport a biblical worldview, but to know that the Lord is sovereign. He already knows who's going to win the 2024 presidential election, and He is not concerned by it. He knows the same thing for 2028 and 2032 and thereon after. The Lord is sovereign, and He has promised that He will come back. Point number three is that candidates and leaders matter. Again, all are fallen, all will let you down in some way, shape, or form. But candidates can purport these things. They can stand on these issues. Be careful of the ones that are loudest. Look for those that dedicate their lives to the Scriptures, studying of the Scriptures, and standing for the things that matter. Bearing in mind there can be a lot of nuance I've talked about Genesis 1 through 12 fairly simply today. There's a lot in there. And again, bring your questions to the Q&A session. But finally, I will leave you with point number four. That is platforms matter. Because candidates can have their challenges. But where do the political parties stand? What do they view as important? What are they going to do even if the candidates are fallen? In the United States, we're generally put into one of two parties. Look at those parties. Study their platforms. For those of you from other countries, you may have the opportunity to look at two or three or four parties in your home country. Do the same. Look at them. Study. But overall, biblical platforms and candidates slash leaders matter. That's what we should look for. And so I'm going to invite uh, Phil Wing back to the stage. He's going to lead us in a prayer of guidance. I want to think about how we can align our hearts with God's Word on issues of politics.